Thank you, and good morning. Good morning. Uh, pastor Moultrie said that I used to be his pastor, uh, let's just speak in very practical terms. He currently is my pastor. Uh, I am so thankful for his ministry in my life, uh, helping me through biblical counseling, and I would say that if there is anyone here uh, and you have uh, some sort of a struggle, some sort of uh, problem that you need help with, I would highly recommend that you go and uh, see him and receive instruction from the word. Um, I'm also very uh, thrilled and excited to be here because I have very wonderful memories from this place. Uh, it was nine years ago this, <clears throat> this month that Matthew and Melissa with Emma, baby Emma, came to visit North Shore Baptist Church. It was in March of 2012. Uh, we have two services. Um, Matthew preached the first sermon that he ever preached in his life at North Shore Baptist Church that morning. I stopped counting after he used the phrase, you guys, 50 times. Um, I went to him between services and I said, Matthew, excellent sermon, wonderful content. You just can't keep saying you guys. Second service, he said it zero times. Uh, we knew from the very beginning that he was a very gifted uh, speaker and teacher of the word of God. And then thinking to uh, later that fall when uh, Matthew uh, by providence discovered this church and you opened your arms to him and what a wonderful wonderful decade it has been uh, for the gospel to go forth from this place so it is my honor to be here I have preached here before um, with the great pulpit swap uh, providence put each of the ten pastors where they were to be and uh, I am in church so I cannot lie the truth of the matter is if, uh, if it wasn't Providence, if I just got to choose which church I would come to, this is the one that I would be at. So it is my joy and delight to, to be here and as a kind gift, God put me here this morning. I'm going to speak to you today about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to bring it to you today from a very familiar passage, and that is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So if you would please turn to that passage of scripture and allow me to read it, and then I will set it up for it, uh, for you. Uh, I will explain it, and hopefully I will be able to make application in your life, but more importantly, we are hopeful that the Holy Spirit will make application in your life. Here's what the word of God says, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father in heaven, as we consider our great high priest, Jesus Christ, today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would impress deeply upon our hearts the need for a mediator, a one who is merciful and faithful. And Lord, I pray that we would be able, by the power of your Spirit, to see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ 
as our great mediator. And then, Lord, I pray that by grace you would enable us to move toward him and cling to him and enter into your presence with confidence and boldness. Lord, please work that in our hearts and be with me as I bring the word today that I could do so with joy, with compassion, and Lord, that there would be true conviction by your spirit as the word goes forth today. Lord, do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what is a priest? Well, a priest is quite simply someone who connects us with God, uh, someone who goes to God on behalf of the people. We cannot connect with God on our own because he is holy and we are sinful. That we need someone to bridge the gap. And so what a priest does is he stands in the middle and touches both parties and brings them together. Well, this letter, the letter of Hebrews, was written to Jews. They were living in Rome in or around the year 66 or 67 AD. Um, they knew what a priest was. They understood the need for a priest. In fact, their religion, Judaism, provided for this need with many priests. And all of these priests came from the tribe of Levi. But there was one special priest or top-notch priest known as the high priest. And this one not only came from the tribe of Levi, but it had to come from the family of Aaron. And he was called the high priest, and his most significant role as high priest in bringing God and the people together happened one day per year on the Day of Atonement when he would pass through the veil and walk into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And he did it in order to atone for the sins of the people. We read about this in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapters 16 and 23. Now, when you consider how the people of God uh, in Judaism worshipped in the Old Covenant, in the temple or in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies was the place where symbolically the presence of God dwelt. And in the Holy of Holies, there was a mercy seat or a lid which sat on top of a chest. And the chest was known as the Ark of the Covenant. And the act of sprinkling blood on the mercy seat was a symbolic gesture. It signified that there had been a death, that there had been a substitution, and that someone had died for the people. And in this particular case, it was an animal. An animal had died, an animal had shed its blood, which was a picture of the gospel foundational truth, and that is that the wages of sin is death. And so the high priest would do this every year. But what you need to know about this, and this is so important, is that never once ever was one single sin ever actually removed through this act. It was 100% symbolic. Well, if it was just symbolic, then why go through with it? Well, because it gave Israel a, a visual, an illustration, or a symbol of the coming one who would shed his blood on the cross and actually atone for our sins. And that was a once for all act. It was never to be repeated. That Christ died for our sins. The gospel is of first importance. And so what I want you to do for just a moment is to put yourself in their sandals. You are a Jew. Uh, your Jewishness is your entire life. It is your identity, it is your family, it is your religion, it is your social life. There was no such thing as being marginally Jewish. If you were Jewish, you were all in. 
And all of a sudden, someone comes to you and says, Jesus of Nazareth is our great high priest. And he offered his own blood on the cross for your sins, and he rose again. And that the rituals of the Day of Atonement are no longer necessary. They were just symbols, figures, shadows, types. But the substance, the reality of sins forgiven is the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And something happens in your heart. The Holy Spirit comes and breathes life into you. You see it. You understand it. You believe it. And you say, amen, hallelujah, what a savior. My savior is Jesus Christ. He is now my high priest. But by saying yes to Jesus, you are saying no or goodbye to Judaism and the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood. And as a result of saying goodbye to Judaism, you are now disowned by your family, you are disowned by your friends, and you are a target for persecution by Nero and the Roman government. And as a result of this, your faith starts to weaken and you begin to have this debate in your mind. Is it really worth sticking with Christianity? Wouldn't it be easier if I just went back to my family and I went back to Judaism? And the answer that the author of the book of Hebrews gives is, no, it, it would not be better. It would not be easier. In fact, it would be far worse. And the reason why it would be worse is because when you forfeit Jesus or when you discard the Son of God, you are getting rid of, rid of your only connection to God. And so the author is going to spend a lot of ink in this book convincing his audience that Jesus is our great high priest. In fact, it starts at the end of chapter 4 and it runs all the way through chapter 10. So Jesus is our great high priest. And so what we're going to do, that's the background, what we're going to do is we're going to take this passage and I'm going to divide it into three points, uh, one point for each verse. Our three points are very simple. Point number one, his position. Point number two, his passion. Point number three, his power. Let's just take them one at a time. First of all, his position, and that is, his position is our great high priest. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, his position, great high priest. Uh, perhaps some of their Jewish friends who knew that they had become Christian might pose a question to them and, and, and really question why they switched over to Christianity. And maybe they would have said something like this. How do you expect to have your sins forgiven if you do not have a priest who can connect you to God? And so the author, anticipating that, that, that persecution or that objection, says, we do have a high priest, and not just any priest, but a great high priest who is superior to any priest in Judaism. And his superiority is demonstrated in the fact that he passed through the heavens. The, the Jewish high priest would pass from the outer court into the holy place and then pass from the holy place through the veil into the holy of holies. But in so doing, it was just symbolic. But what we have is not symbolism, but we have actually through the ascension of Jesus and through his session to the right hand of the majesty on high, 
we have a high priest who is actually in the presence of God. Now consider, what was the temple or what was the tabernacle? It wasn't real connection with God. It was all just symbolic. Uh, you um, have heard of a group called the Backstreet Boys, have you not? Is anybody young enough to remember the Backstreet Boys? 20 years ago, I took my family on vacation to western Pennsylvania and uh, to visit my mother. And about 20 miles from where I grew up in western Pennsylvania is a place called Clearfield. And the first week of August, every year, is the Clearfield County Fair. And it is a wonderful western Pennsylvania County Fair. I mean, you've got hogs and cows and candied apples and rides and games. I mean, it is a country fair. And in this county fair, there happened to be a, a sort of a side stage. And there was this group or band, and, and I use that word band loosely because no one was playing an instrument. It was a tribute group to the Backstreet Boys. They were just, either they were lip syncing or, or they were maybe singing along with some tracks. And these guys kind of resembled the Backstreet Boys. Well, I have four children. My two daughters at the time were too young to even know who the Backstreet Boys were. And then I have an older son who knew that it was just an imitation, that it was just a fake. But I have a son named Charlie, and he was seven years old at the time, and he actually thought that they were the Backstreet Boys. And so what you had were these hogs and these pigs and these candied apples, and then this tiny little stage with these guys standing up there with like six or seven teenage girls screaming at them along with my seven-year-old son saying, hey, Nick, hey, hey, Howie, hey, AJ, I want it that way. You know, it was, it, but here's the, here's the fact of the matter. It wasn't real. It wasn't real. It was just an imitation. Well, when the Jews would go into the temple or the tabernacle or send the priest in, they thought that it was real, but it wasn't real. The reality of our connection with God does not come through the Levitical high priest, but it comes through our great high priest who ascended to the right hand of the, of the throne of the majesty on high and is seated there ever living to make intercession for us. His position is that of mediator or go-between or great high priest, and he is there by virtue not of the blood of an animal, but by virtue of his own blood. Notice something very interesting in verse 14. The titles that the author uses in order to depict the great high priest are both speaking of his humanity and his divinity. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is his human name, which signifies that he is fully man. Son of God shows that he is fully divine that he is the son of God. And what is a priest or a mediator? It's someone who can connect God and man together. And who can do that? The man, Christ Jesus, the son of God. He brings God and man together. Notice also that no one else can carry the title of great high priest. But now Jesus, in light of this position as our great high priest, gives us this command. And what is the command? Let us hold fast our confession. What does that even mean? 
In layman's terms, here's what it means. It means don't turn back. Don't let go. Press on. Persevere. And if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, repeatedly this author will tell you that you have to press on. Uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, We are his household if we hold fast. If, if, conditional phrase. And there are many times where this author will say, you've got to press on. But previously, every time we are told to press on, it is negative in its slant, in that if you don't press on, you're not going to ultimately be in heaven. But here, it's more positive, and that is that if you do press on, there is a great benefit. And what is that benefit? It is that we have a great high priest. And in light of the fact that we have that great high priest, we are to hold fast our confession. So that's point number one, his position. But now let's move on to something more emotional, and that's point number two, and that is his passion. And what is his passion? It is sympathy. Sympathy. Uh, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. His passion is sympathy. Now, notice the force of the double negative here which results in a positive. He does not say we have a high priest who can sympathize, although it is true we do have a high priest who can sympathize, but that is not what it says. It says we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize. And you say, well, what is the difference? Well, some commentators uh, have viewed it this way, and I tend to agree with them, is that the, is that the, is that the, readers would have an objection and they would say, no, wait a minute. You're telling me that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens? He's not even with us? I mean, it's not even though he is in a, a different city or a different country. He's not even on our planet. He has gone to heaven. If he is not in heaven, how can he relate to us? Would it not be better to have a priest who is with us in the here and now rather than one who is in heaven a long way away who cannot relate? To which the author says, if you're seeing it that way, then you're seeing it all wrong. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. On the contrary, this author says, he can relate to your grief. In other words, he can sympathize with your weaknesses. What does this mean? He can sympathize with our weaknesses. I think we need to be very careful here. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have to become a man in order to understand our plight? Did he have to become a man in order to understand our plight? No, absolutely not. Uh, Jesus is omniscient God. There is nothing that he does not know or understand. Uh, there is a sense in which Jesus understands sympathizes, empathizes with what we go through simply by virtue of the fact that he is all-knowing. So even without becoming a man, he gets it by virtue of the fact that he knows all things. In the Old Testament, it says he knows our thoughts afar off. He didn't have to become a man in order to know our thoughts afar off. And, and even as it says in Psalm 103, verse 14, this was written a thousand years before the incarnation, 
David writes, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He didn't have to become a man in order to know our frame and remember that we are dust. He's fully aware of our limitations and he knew them before he became a man. However, the fact that he condescended and took upon himself human flesh and became a man, born of a woman, born in the fullness of time, born under the law, and experienced everything that we experience that is the full range of human limitations on this planet, intensifies his sympathy for us. It doesn't make him wiser, it doesn't make him smarter, it doesn't make him more informed. But it does express and demonstrate his love for us and his identification with us. But we need to be careful when we talk about this because some people take this too far further than the text itself intends. That is to say that some people will sometimes say something like this. Because of his humanity, we can conclude that he can look us in the eye and say, I know exactly what you're going through because I have been there myself. Well, if we go in that direction, we are painting ourselves in a corner. The illustration is going to break down badly very quickly. For example, I am a pastor, and as a pastor, by definition, I deal with death all the time. Um, but I have never lost a spouse. Uh, I hope uh, that I never have to lose a spouse. I hope that my wife does lose a spouse because I would much rather die than to have to put her in the ground. But as a pastor, I have to deal with death all the time. I have to deal with people who lose their spouses. And when this happens, I want you to know that I love these people. I go to these people. I, I, I care about these people. I pray for them. I pray with them. I weep with them. I feel for them. But here's what I cannot do. I cannot look them in the eye and say, I know exactly how you feel because I don't know exactly how they feel, seeing as how I myself have never lost a spouse. But if I take it to this extreme and say, I don't know how you feel, but Jesus knows how you feel, well, some people who aren't thinking it through might hear that and say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that sweet? Amen. And other people will look at that and say, hey, wait a minute. Wait, when did Jesus ever lose a spouse? And the fact of the matter is, Jesus didn't lose a spouse, seeing as how he was never married, and that's where the illustration breaks down. This verse does not mean that Jesus himself, in his humanity, in his 33 years on earth, experienced every single hardship that we potentially could encounter. What the author is saying here is something more broad and it is more general, and that is that because Jesus subjected himself to the limitations of becoming a man, he experientially knows what people are going through in their weaknesses and in their frailties and in their sorrows and in their disappointments. And the reason why is because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and because he was poor, that the... That the Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he was sad and he wept and he got tired and he slept and he got hungry and he ate and he thirsted and he was despised and rejected of man and he bled and he died. You see, experientially, Jesus can sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses. And let's remember, and this is so important to remember, 
And that is that even right now, Jesus maintains his humanity at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't come to earth for 33 years and then go back to heaven and forfeit his humanity. He remains, as our high priest, a man, fully God and fully man. So as we read the end of this verse, pay really close attention because I think I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction than maybe you previously have heard it preached. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now again, be very careful that you do not take this too far or take it in the wrong direction. Some have suggested that Jesus has been tempted and feels everything that we feel in our temptations. And that simply is not true. He had no inner bias or inner gravitational pull towards sin. His temptations were 100% external. They were from Satan, they were from man, they were from circumstances. We too, from time to time, are tempted by Satan, men, and circumstances, but we have something else going on in our hearts, and that is that we are tempted from within. We have an inner voice which talks to us all the time, which is telling us to sin. Sometimes that voice is louder than others, but the truth of the matter is, you always tell you to sin, and you always will tell yourself to do that. You will stop telling yourself to sin when you flatline. So, on this earth, get used to you because you are always going to be with you and you are always going to be telling you to do the wrong thing. However, Jesus, who had a pure and a holy heart, had no internal allurement to break the law of God. His temptations to sin were different than ours. They were 100% external. Which leads me to take this verse in a slightly different direction than maybe you have heard before. And that is that the word tempted can also be translated as tested. Did you know that? Tempted and tested uh, can be interchangeable in that sense. And the testing of Jesus, which included his temptations to sin by Satan in the wilderness... Also, and this is where the rubber meets the road, also included him repeatedly being tested to turn back from the suffering of the cross and to forego the cross altogether. Let me give you one of those testings or temptations that Jesus went through. Back in Matthew chapter 16, if you would turn to that, the setting is Caesarea Philippi. Peter has just had his greatest shining moment where he pronounces Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And no sooner does he say that, that he comes forward with his greatest blunder of all time. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 and following. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Previously, Jesus had been giving them veiled language concerning the crucifixion, but now it is right in your face. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. How does Peter respond? 
He responds by giving Jesus a test or tempting him to forego the cross. And what does he say in verse 22? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you see where the testing came in? The testing came in in the form of trying to get him to turn away from the cross. Now, if we look at the context, and context is king, if we look at the context of Hebrews chapter 4, the testing that Jesus went through as you read into chapter 5, and, and I believe that Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 doesn't really belong in chapter 4. I believe it belongs in the discussion of chapter 5 with Jesus as our high priest. But be that as it may, as you're reading from chapter 4 into chapter 5, and you get to chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, you see the same type of testing or temptation that comes upon Jesus, and that was the temptation to turn away from the cross and to forego the cross. Look what it says in Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication, supplications with loud cries and tears. What is that talking about? That is talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you see where in the context the testing of Jesus is to turn back from the cross? Because remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, thy will be done. You see, I don't think Hebrews 4, 15 is referring to Jesus having a struggle as to whether or not he should steal money. I, I don't think Hebrews 4.15 was Jesus having a struggle as to whether or not to commit adultery. I don't think Hebrews 4.15 is talking about some sort of a struggle that Jesus had as to whether or not to gossip about Bartholomew. I think in the context, the temptation or the testing that is referred to was his ability to press ahead and not turn back when tempted or tested not to go to the cross. And his victory, his victory over this was seen in his restraint when he did not call 12 legions of angels. His victory over this was seen with his compliance when he allowed them to take that crown of thorns and to ground it into his skull. His victory was seen when he took the muscles in his hand and he grabbed the mock scepter or the reed and held it in his hand and he allowed himself to be spit upon and mocked and did nothing in return. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he didn't open his mouth. Now, I think that the victory was seen in his passivity to, to allow his hands and his feet to be nailed to the cross. I think that his victory in this was his unwavering determination to stay put for six hours and to allow his father to kill him. You see, the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written were in a parallel situation. They were on the fence. 
It was decision time. Am I going to press ahead with Jesus or am I going to go back? What the author says is, you hold on. You hold on. You persevere. You press on. Now, you might suffer and be killed. You might be martyred because of your association with Jesus. And I'm not sure what cruel or creative way Nero is going to find to humiliate you and torture you. But you hold on. Why? Because you have a sympathetic and an empathetic high priest who knows exactly what you are going through right now because he himself was repeatedly tested and tried to forego the cross, yet he was without sin. Some people say, well, because he didn't have that inner pull towards sin, then his, his temptation was not as great as ours. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the intensity of his tempting was far greater than anything that we would go through for two reasons. Number one, we don't know what it feels like to endure testing or tempting because we are always giving in. The person who doesn't finish the race doesn't know what it feels like to get to the end. Whenever you quit, the testing ends. He never gave in. So it just built and built and built. And the other reason why, and this is the main reason why, and this is the main thing that I'm going to tell you this morning, this might be the most important thing that you ever hear in your entire life, and that is that we don't fear God because we don't know Him. And if you knew Him, you would fear Him. But please understand how intimately Jesus knew the Father and Jesus knew the wrath of God. And Jesus knew that that was all coming down upon him. If you knew the wrath of God, you would run to Jesus right now. And that is all you would do. And you would beg for mercy. And you would do anything not to know the wrath of God. Jesus knew God intimately. He knew God very well. There was a real testing, a real temptation to turn back. But he didn't turn back. And because he didn't turn back, you who are thinking about going back to Judaism, don't do it. You have a sympathetic high priest who is tempted or tested in all ways as you are, and yet without sin. Now, let me say this. Although I believe it's true that Jesus was never tempted to steal, he was never tempted to commit adultery or to gossip about Bartholomew. Um, And I do believe that he is the spotless lamb of God. This is very important. Yes, I I do believe that he never actually sinned. I believe that our our salvation is contingent upon him not sinning. His record becomes our record. If he sins once, he cannot die for our sins. And his record does us no good. Uh, It's what the smart guys call the impeccability of Christ that not only... Did he not sin, but he could not have sinned? I I believe that with all of my heart. I just don't think that that's what this passage is talking about. I think that in this context, the primary connection of sympathy, which he exercises as high priest, is that he knows what it's like to suffer for the sake of righteousness. But let's just say for the sake of argument that I am wrong and that I have interpreted it incorrectly. And by the way, if you 
listen to my preaching, uh, you will find that in every sermon I interpret something incorrectly. We know in part and we prophesy in part. I'm doing the best that I can to, to explain it, but, but nobody gets it all right. But let's just say for the sake of argument that I get this wrong. <clears throat> I am not denying today the fact that Jesus sympathizes with our daily hurts and non-threatening life trials. In other words, he cares, I think in this context, he cares about you denying the faith and rejecting Christianity. But let's be clear, I think he also cares about your ingrown toenail. I think in the context, this is saying he cares about your ability to withstand persecution. But I believe he also cares about your depression or your thoughts of suicide. In the context, I think this passage means that he cares about your willingness to suffer and be mocked at work or at school. But I also think he cares about your addiction to alcohol or pornography. I'm not denying the overarching love and sympathy of Jesus as our high priest. I'm simply saying that in this context, the author is probably primarily, primarily referring to his suffering and persecution. But regardless, even if I'm wrong, here's what we can gather from this, and that is that he does care, he is sympathetic, and he is without sin. Which brings us to our final point today, and that is his power. And that is that he can help. He doesn't just care, but he helps. Have you ever been stranded somewhere? Maybe you've had a flat tire, or, or maybe just something that really has gone wrong, and, and you are in need of help. And someone comes along, and they are very sympathetic. Oh, what happened, man? Oh, tough break. Wow. And like the priest and the Levite on the uh, road uh, of the Good Samaritan, they just keep walking. It's like, your sympathy has not really helped me at all, okay? What I need is someone to help me jack this car up so that I can get the tire changed. I, I, sympathy only goes so far. What would it be if Jesus just was able to feel what we felt, but he couldn't do anything for us? I want to tell you today... We have a great high priest who not only cares what we are going through, but he is able to help us. That's what verse 16 says. There is power to help us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. H-E-L-P. Help in the time of need. Now this entire passage has been written with the motif or in the language of, of the priesthood, the high priest, Aaron, who goes into the um, Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. I believe that I have always misunderstood this verse until just recently. Where it speaks about the throne of grace, I, in my mind, always pictured the throne of grace as a chair or a seat where a king or a queen would sit, the royal throne. Now, I'm not denying the fact that Jesus sits on a royal throne. I just think in the context here, throne of grace is referring to the mercy seat or the lid which sat on the Ark of the Covenant. And here's the reason why I say that. 
In Isaiah 37, 16, it speaks of the mercy seat as a throne. O, o Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Stop right there. What were the cherubim? Well, in the Ark of the Covenant, there was, I'm sorry, in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And then there were two images above the mercy seat, which were of the cherubim. They were the guardians of God's holiness. And then there was the visible presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. But where is he enthroned? He is enthroned where? Above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone. You, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So, so the throne of grace is the mercy seat. And when we speak about the mercy seat, we are not talking about the actual wooden lid, which was overlaid with gold. That's just symbolic of saying Jesus himself. Sort of like when you talk about the crown. I understand that there is a television program called The Crown. I'm told that it's a very good television program. Maybe I will watch it one day when I have time. But everybody knows that when you speak about the crown, you are not literally talking about the headdress that Elizabeth wears on top of her hair, but you are talking about her herself, the, that she is royal. So the, the mercy seat is not the lid, but the mercy seat is speaking of Jesus himself. It's speaking of his sacrifice, his intercession, his role as mediator, his finished work for mankind, his enthronement and his acceptability before God. And so the temple or the tabernacle is where heaven and earth meet. And the central feature of that religious shrine was the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And that which symbolically made the people acceptable in the presence of God was the evidence of death, and the evidence of death was blood. And this is why... The book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. This is why in the Passover, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is why even in the New Testament, it's the blood, it's the blood, it's the blood. Ephesians 1, 7, in him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And so what you have is Jesus on the cross sprinkling his own blood on the mercy seat. And he becomes a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice or an appeasement of God's wrath. And as such, the holy wrath of God is satisfied. And what happens is the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And our, because our great high priest has sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. You see, because of the throne of grace, we can now draw nigh or draw near. Not one day a year symbolically through another man, but we ourselves, 24 hours a day, in reality, with no limitations, going before God with a disposition of confidence. Let us draw near with confidence, not self-confidence. Please don't view your prayer life or your approach to God like this. I was behaving myself on the internet and I was especially generous with my tithe check and I have been kind to my wife and I have witnessed on the street corner 
And I have prayed and read my Bible every day. Therefore, based upon my performance, I now with confidence can go into the presence of God. If you are going into the presence of God like that, you're not going into the presence of God because your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So it is not a self-confidence. And brothers and sisters, it is not a cockiness. Some people have interpreted boldness or confidence as cockiness. And so they will pray something like this. Yo, Jesus, what's up? Hey, God, it's me. How you been? Just want to have a chat with the man upstairs. Or or, or a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. That is not confidence. That is irreverence, and it is highly offensive. Coming boldly with confidence doesn't mean that we lose sight of his majesty. Who knew Jesus better than the Apostle John? Yet when John sees the unveiled glory of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, he doesn't walk up to Jesus and say, Yo, Jesus, how you been? He falls before him as a dead man. Confidence does not mean that we are cocky. Confidence does not mean that we are self-confident. Confidence means that we approach through the finished work of Christ, and he has made it possible through his blood and righteousness. And as we approach, it means that we can pray anytime and anywhere. Let's remember, we don't deserve to be there. It is a throne of grace. It's not a throne of works. And by definition, it is a free gift. Admission has been paid through another. So let's just say you're a Jew and the Day of Atonement is approaching and you're alive and then the Day of Atonement comes and then the next day you're alive. Do you know what has happened? Blood has been sprinkled and it was not your blood. That's the picture. Someone else died in my place. Now, it speaks of the time of need here. Again, I think that the time of need means when these folks are going to be arrested and taken off and perhaps martyred. But it doesn't have to mean that. I want you to notice that it is mercy. We receive mercy. I believe this speaks to our past sins. He forgives all our sins. If you are not saved today, I want to tell you, you can find mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But there's also grace to help in time of need. I believe that this speaks to our present and to our future. That is, the times of need arise. When those times of need arise, whether it is temptation to sin or sickness or broken relationships or depression or loneliness or guidance or the death of a loved one or, brothers and sisters, something that you're all going to have to face, and that is your own death, our great high priest is merciful and will help you in that time of need. I need thee every hour. As we close today, I want to give you three points of application. Number one, press on. Don't turn back. I don't suppose anybody here today is contemplating leaving Jesus to go back into Judaism, although there might be someone that categorically is there. But don't leave Jesus to go back into anything. Don't leave Jesus to go back into the world. But he says, hold fast to your profession. Press on, persevere, don't turn back. Application point number two, pray. 
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We are invited to approach the throne of grace. There is access because of Jesus. And so, since you have this invitation from Christ himself, come to me, then pray. Attend prayer meetings, pray privately, pray without ceasing. And finally... third point of application view Jesus as one who is merciful and helpful and sympathetic view Jesus as one who is merciful and helpful and sympathetic let's think about our approach to people whether it is your parents or whether it is your boss or whether it is your spouse or whether it is your elders our approach to people is often shaped by how we think they are going to receive us. Why is it the children will not go to their parents and tell them when something has gone wrong? Because they are fearful of the reaction that they will receive. Why is it the spouses cannot talk to one another and tell one another the truth? Because they are fearful of how the spouse will react if the truth comes out. Why is it that church members will walk in darkness and they will not come to their elders for help because if they ever know what I actually did, what will they think of me? How will they respond? And so what we do is we do exactly what our father did. See, our tendency as the sons and daughters of Adam is not to sin and then go running to Jesus and looking for help. Our initial response is to sin and then go looking for a bush to hide behind and to be in darkness. Brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with this today. I, I, I think most of you know Jesus. I think most of you love Jesus. And I'm sure that every person here theoretically believes that Jesus can help. But I want you to be honest with yourself and admit that there are times when you are reluctant to go seeking him because you view him as a Christ with a scowl. We've been over this before. He doesn't want to hear from you. And as you see your Christ, he is there with his arms folded and he's cold and he's formal and he's scowling and he's disgusted and he's disappointed. And I want to tell you today, when you see him that way, you are wrong. Not only are you wrong, but you are an idolater. You have, you have created a God in your own image. That Jesus doesn't exist. That Jesus is an idol. I want to tell you that the Jesus of the Bible is holy and that he is powerful, but I also want you to know that he is leaning forward. And he sympathizes. And he cares. And he understands. And, and he loves you. And he's not like you think he is. I'm the prodigal son and I am walking home. There are two things that are going to strike me. Number one, it sure is nice to be home. Man, this food tastes good. Oh, that bath feels good. Sleeping in a bed feels good. The other thing that's going to strike me is... My dad is not like I thought he was.
He's different. I want to tell you, friends, today, those of you that are, are, are shy to move toward Jesus, he's not like you think he is. He is a merciful and gentle high priest who can empathize and sympathize and his arms are wide open. Come to me. Come to me. One of my favorite hymns, I will in closing share the lyrics with you. Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress, distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the day is weary and the long night dreary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all the night long. Does he care? Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long night dreary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? When my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks? Is it aught to him? Does he see? Oh, he's leaning forward. He's sympathetic. He loves you. He knows he cares. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long night dreary, I know my Savior cares. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that there is a way home. And Lord, for the unsaved, it is accessible today. Lord, I pray that they would call upon Jesus to be saved and find him to be merciful and loving. And Lord, for those of us that know you, we who ought to know better, Lord, we who have run from you, I pray, dear Lord, that that run would end today and that we would come home. Oh, ye who are weary, come home. Lead us home by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.